You may open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 18, which will be the first reference that we've used this morning. We just sang a hymn. It's number 161 in our hymnals. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. I do not believe that any of us properly appreciate what you're holding in your laps at this time. And that is the excellent Word of God. The Creator God of heaven, whom no man has seen, whom no man will ever see, who cannot be seen, who dwells in a light that no man can even approach unto, wrote a book telling us about himself, about our origin, about the history of the world for the 6,000 years that it has existed, for the hope of eternal life, and for the most sublime scheme of salvation that could ever be imagined, that God would die for sinners through Jesus Christ our Lord. And how we ought to live, not only to please our Creator God, but to live in such a way that brings success and happiness and fulfillment in life. Rules for nations, uh, which if they were to practice, would be the utopia that the foolish dreamers of this world thought they could find, like Karl Marx and others, who found nothing but insanity and destruction for the peoples under their ridiculous philosophies. It's all, all the answers are in the Bible. Amen. We went on to sing in that song, number 161, what more can he say than to you he hath said? It's complete. The word of God is complete. It's able to make the man of God perfect Amen. unto every good work. This morning, I want to spend one or two sermons with you telling you why I and why we believe the Bible. We are Christians, but we're not merely Christians. We are Bible Christians. We are Christians because we follow a book that tells us about Jesus Christ his person, his life, and his teachings. If it were not for this book, we would have the knowledge that there is an eternal creator God because the Bible tells us that there is sufficient evidence of that in the creation. And just going outside, we see that evidence that there is a creator God. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. All of that is saying that the space above us and the bodies that move in that space show the existence of God. We could believe that there was a God, and we would, and we should, based on creation alone, but creation doesn't tell us about Jesus Christ. So without the Bible, we would be followers of God, but we wouldn't know how to follow him. We would just know there was a God that had the power of life and death and had created a universe in which there was horrible evil and incredible good. And we'd be very confused by it. And even if we were born again, which would put in our hearts a love for that God and a desire to repent and to humble ourselves and to seek Him, we still wouldn't know how to follow Him. We still wouldn't know about His Son, Jesus Christ, because He has revealed all of that through a book that God wrote, and that's the Bible. We are Bible Christians. Our religion is based on a book, and our book can be shown to be written by God. Do you know how to show it to be written by God? Are you well established in the fact that it is written by God, not just a presumption of faith, but do you understand that God gave certain criteria by which books are to be judged? Our faith is most reasonable. We do not believe the Bible is the Word of God just because the Bible says it's the Word of God. 
There are many books that say they are the Word of God. And with the information explosion that we're living in, those books are now readily accessible by anyone. You can go to your computer screen and go into any search engine and type in Veda. And up will come the hallucinations of the Hindus. Snake worshiping, wife burning, pagans. You can type in the word Koran, and up will come the hallucinations of a man of Arabian descent of 1,500 years ago. You can type in Buddha, hymns, meditations, and get other holy books. You can type in the Book of Mormon, and there you can have the Book of Mormon to read. A novel written by Joseph Smith a little over 150 years ago. There are many holy books in the earth, and they all must be compared by certain criteria. And the Bible gives us that criteria. We are Bible Christians. We're Christians because we believe the Bible. We believe the Bible because it's God's Word. And how do we know it's God's Word? That's what I want to answer in one or two sermons. Amen. Now, for me to help your value system in your own hearts, I want to tell you that what I preached last Sunday is more important than what I'm preaching this morning. Amen. I've done that quite a bit with you recently because I want your value systems to be the value systems of God. Amen. But this morning is necessary because there's a concerted effort being made to teach us right now in our nation that the Koran and the Bible are equal holy books. And the Torah along with them are equal holy books. The Talmud of the Jews are equal holy books. But they're not equal. Some, one was written by God, and the others cannot be written by God. They all can't be written by God because they contradict each other and are violently opposed to one another. One, only one, can be written by God, or God didn't write any book at all. Those are the only two options we have. God wrote no book, or God wrote one book. We believe that God wrote one book, and there is sound evidence for our faith. There is sound evidence for our understanding that the Bible was written by God. We do not base our Christianity on tradition. We don't base it on history. We don't base it on commentaries. We don't base it on the ideas of men. We don't base it on creeds. We don't have a creed for our church in that sense. Our Christianity rests on the Bible being God's word to us. Is it reasonable to trust the Bible? Is there good, sound evidence that the Bible was written by God? Yes, there is. And in just one or two sermons, I want to give you some of that evidence for you to be able to give to others and just to confirm your faith that we have a most blessed treasure, that we have an incredibly wonderful treasure that you have in your laps right at this moment and many copies in your homes and for which we ought to be most thankful. And when we do take the time, which ought to be often, if we believe what I'm going to preach, and we open its pages, that we look at it as the Word of God, because God wrote it. Amen. We cannot call ourselves Christians with any soundness to our statement unless we establish the authority of the Bible. Because all that we claim about Jesus Christ is contained in the Bible. Yep. And only in the Bible. With any weight of authority behind it, it's impossible to convince a natural man of the authority of the Bible as being a book written by God. And we don't care about natural men. But there will be spiritual men that we may meet in time, we may meet through our church website that, have, that were not brought up in a nation that had the Bible as their holy book, that were not brought up in a family that had the Bible as their holy book, that God puts in their hearts a spiritual curiosity to find the God of the universe and puts in their hearts an un, a discontentment and disbelief about the particular holy book that their nation might use. We want to have a little bit of material 
to give that person to show them that the Bible is God's word. I am not dealing this morning with the King James Version being God's version. Oh, no. We're way back before that. We first of all need to determine that the Bible is God's book. Then we need to determine what version of the 100 English translations there are. There's more than that, but 100 that have been read by a few people at least. Then we determine that the King James Bible is God's version. But first we have to go back and why do we believe the Bible? We're not dealing with every word of God. I preached to you a message entitled Every Word of God in which we looked at the internal statements of the Bible as to the accuracy of the Bible. Remember, we looked at examples where Jesus Christ and the apostles would argue doctrinal points from single words, single verb tenses, single letters, single verb moods. We're not dealing with that. We have to go back before that. Is the Bible God's word? If it's God's word, then everything it says about itself is true. If it's God's word, then we want to find the one in English that bears the fruit of being God's translation. If we can establish the Bible as the word of God, God's book to us, God's letter to us, then we have a rule for our lives. We have a rule for our church. We know that what we're doing is pleasing to that God because he's put it in writing for us to know how we ought to worship him. So many competing denominations and cults today are trying to worship God in so many different ways. But if God wrote the Bible, there's only one way to worship Him. And we must worship Him that way. I have 20 criteria that prove the Bible to be the Word of God. But there's one main one that God loves. And there's one main one I want to give you this morning. And we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And you should know this one first. This is the one you want to remember. Because this is the one the others cannot touch. And it by itself is sufficient. It by itself is totally sufficient to prove that the Bible was written by God. And that is the fulfilled prophecies of the Bible. Amen. No one else will make prophecies because no one else has God's wisdom showing them the future. I don't care whether it was Joseph standing in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the greatest monarch on earth at that time, or Daniel standing in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the greatest monarch on earth at that time. In both cases, they told the king that there is a God that reveals secrets. There is a God that can reveal the future. And so both of those kings benefited By knowing things that were to come, Nebuchadnezzar didn't benefit much because he went ahead against that warning and advice from Daniel. But Pharaoh, king of Egypt, benefited greatly and saved his nation by the warning that Joseph gave him. Let's look in Deuteronomy chapter 18 about prophets. Now, the Bible itself calls itself the word of prophecy, and the word prophecy is used two different ways in the Bible. Sometimes it's used in a wide way. Being a prophet or prophecy simply means revealing God's will. So even if you're preaching history about the past, that can be called the work of a prophet, and it can be called prophecy in that wide sense because you're revealing things from God that would otherwise not be known. In the Bible sense of that wide use of the word, I'm prophesying to you this morning because I'm preaching to you God's word and revealing to you God's will and God's ways. There's a more narrower use of the word prophecy or prophet, and that's someone who foretells the future. We want to remember both because we'll see both as we look at some verses. When the Bible says that it is the more sure word of prophecy, we understand it as declaring that it is the more sure revelation of God's will. Not just future things, but past things as well. Let's come to Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses warns the children of Israel about other prophets. He has just given them the prophecy of the great prophet Jesus Christ. Not the great prophet Muhammad, because Muhammad wasn't a prophet in any sense of the word. 
He didn't reveal anything about God from the past because all he did was steal from the Bible. Whenever he spoke about the past, he stole from the Bible, and because he stole it without understanding the Bible, he confused it greatly. And he didn't dare say anything about the future because he didn't know the future. So there are no prophecies in the Koran. We come to Deuteronomy 18. The great prophet of the Lord is in verses 15 through 19, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ because the New Testament tells us that plainly. But even that, we need to make sure first that we know the Bible is the word of God to be able to argue from its internal statements. Verse 20, but in contrast to the Lord Jesus Christ, but the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. The Bible says that if a prophet comes along and uses the name of God to speak something in God's name, which God did not command him to speak, or he uses the name of other gods, like Allah, that prophet should die. In God's judgment of things, that prophet should die that speaks contrary to the true God's commandments. But now what if a prophet came to us, a preacher, a messenger, revealing the will of God, and as far as we know, the name of God is Jehovah. And a prophet comes to us in the name of Jehovah, declaring things to us. How do we know that that prophet is truly Jehovah's prophet? Look at verse 21. And if thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? That's a very good question. Moses knew they were going to ask it, and we all ought to ask it. How do we measure the word of God? How do we prove the word of God? How do we know that it's truly God from heaven speaking by a prophet? And so the question is placed here for us because God knew we would ask this question. And the answer is verse 22. When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, and in your Bibles you know what that means. It is Jehovah. When a prophet speaketh in the name of Jehovah, would you listen to a prophet speaking in any other name? No. Because Jehovah is the true and living God. I am that I am. So that rules them out already. When a prophet speaketh, in the name of the Lord Jehovah, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. The measure of the prophets of God and the measure of the word of God is by their prophecies being fulfilled, by statements being made about future things and those things coming to pass, that's how we know that God has spoken. And the Word of God gives us this as the criterion, singular, by which we ought to judge prophets. Even if they come in the name of Jehovah, we do not listen to them unless their signs come to pass. Now, we no longer need signs because signs have been done by Moses all the way to the last of the apostles, that authenticated their writings, which make up the Bible. The Bible could have been overthrown and should have been overthrown 2,000 years ago. The Bible has had more enemies than any other book, which is an, an evidence that will... It's a completely another evidence. How a book can survive when everyone was against it except a few ignorant, uneducated fishermen. Amen how it survived and flourished in spite of the empire in power at that time trying to destroy it, the Jews to which many of the Christians were attached trying to destroy it, heretics arising every year with false doctrines trying to destroy it, and it being held by the poorest people of the earth, and few in number, it survived. Because God had already authenticated it with numerous miracles that even Josephus had to write about, about all the wondrous things that a man named Jesus of Nazareth had done 
in that first century A.D. Look at Deuteronomy 18 has shown us that the first and chief and great criterion by which we measure prophets in the Word of God and the holy books of the world, we're going to measure the Veda by it, we're going to measure the Koran by it, we're going to measure the Talmud by it. They don't dare prophesy. And they don't because they do not know the future. And neither do they have the other proofs that show the Bible to be the Word of God. Sometimes God gave prophecies to warn people about what was going to come to pass so they could change their lives. Sometimes God did give prophecies so that men could know the future to adjust what they were doing to survive, to avoid judgment, or to avoid a famine. Like in the case of Pharaoh that I've already mentioned, which comes from Genesis chapter 41, God gave Pharaoh a dream. Joseph interpreted the dream. Pharaoh was able to know the future, that there were going to be seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine, and during those seven years of plenty, he better store up as much as he can in order to survive the seven years of famine. Daniel warned Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't humble yourself, O king, if you don't break off your sins by righteousness, your tranquility is going to be taken away, and you're going to be driven from the presence of men like an animal. And surely that thing came upon the king, Nebuchadnezzar. He was warned, and he didn't heed the warning. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We will never worry about developing our arguments to defend the word of God as God's word to satisfy a natural man. Because you cannot do it. We will never worry about developing our arguments for creation to satisfy a natural man because you can't do it. Men aren't converted by you having 60 arguments for creation and them only having 24 for evolution. Men are converted by God changing their hearts and giving them faith. And until they have faith, they're just unreasonable idiots. Now, anyone hearing that expression on a tape or anyone here might think that sounds arrogant. But that's what the Bible says. The only reasonable man is the man that has faith because obviously there is something outside our sight that is greater than we are. Amen. And if you, if you do not acknowledge its existence, his existence, then you are a very unreasonable person. But God has to give faith for you to truly believe that. It is unreasonable and wicked men that do not have faith. Men that have faith believe the Bible when they hear it because it addresses something that their soul already knows. They have an internal witness within them that they know the Bible is true. But we might want to help some people get to that point where they hear it, that they would give it a hearing and then to find out that it is the Word of God. Look at this warning in Matthew chapter 24. At verse 23, Jesus said, Then, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus is telling his disciples that as Jerusalem is being torn apart by the Roman armies, there would arise many false prophets showing signs and wonders and saying that Christ was in the desert or Christ was in this particular secret meeting place. And Jesus tells his disciples, don't go after them. You will not have to wonder where I am because when I appear... I'm going to appear like lightning coming out of the east and shining all the way to the west. That means he is going to light up the place. And he did. His judgment was on that nation so great. This is not a warning about what ought to happen in the one half of nanosecond that we're going to have at the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
There isn't anything about the second coming of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24. Because he said all these things shall come to pass on this generation. And this particular warning is repeated by the apostles numerous times when they said, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Amen. Save yourselves. Don't teach your children so they can save themselves 3,000 years from now. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. There were going to be false Christs, and they would be so deceptive, they might be able to deceive even the very elect. Amen. Except Jesus Christ coming on Jerusalem would be so visible, they wouldn't have to worry about some little man out in the desert claiming to be Christ. My point for going here is this. Notice Jesus giving prophecies to save men from future events. Sometimes prophecy is given in the Bible to warn about future events. Look at Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. This is sort of a rabbit trail point because it's not, it's not essential, but I want to show you that some prophecies were for practical benefit. Because there's another reason for prophecies that is greater than this one. Luke 21 and verse 20. Jesus told those same disciples at the same time as the, the passage we just read. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. And then he goes on to describe that if you're a woman, you don't want to be nursing a baby in those days because it's going to be difficult to flee to the mountains. And you don't want to do it in the winter because of the cold and the snow. That's in Matthew and Mark's accounts. Here's a warning. Disciples, when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, when you see the armies coming to destroy Jerusalem, get out of that city and go hide in the mountains. It's a warning as to what they should do. And they did it, and they were saved. And Jerusalem was obliterated. As Jesus had promised, because he fulfilled all the warnings against the Jews when they crucified the Lord of glory. The true God wants to reveal himself to men. He wants men to know him. And he has chosen prophecy as the clearest proof of his existence and his identity. You know, they call Muhammad the great prophet of Islam. In what sense are they using the word prophet? If they're using it to foretell the future, Muhammad didn't prophesy anything. He couldn't. He should have tried. But he couldn't. So there's no evidence that he came from God because the evidence of one coming from God is that he will say that things are going to come to pass and they will come to pass. That was Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22. The leaders of the Mormons are called apostles. But those apostles don't make any prophecies like the apostles we read about in the Bible. They wouldn't dare make prophecies because if they did, then they would be shown to be frauds. But we know that they are because they describe gods and a religion contrary to the Bible and they have never brought about the fulfillment of any prophecies. So why do they call themselves apostles? We have apostles in our own city. A husband and wife apostle team on Birdland Drive this morning. No, this afternoon they're going to meet at 4 o'clock in the Bilo Center. But they don't dare make prophecies either because God is not with them. And unless the great God of heaven is with a man to reveal secrets of the future, it's impossible to do it. Well, I want to show you that God challenges and dares all comers to come to him and try to declare the future like he does. Look in your Bibles at Isaiah 41. Isaiah chapter 41. God wants his people to have confidence in him. And he knows the clearest way to do that 
is to declare things before they come to pass. So that when they come to pass, the people will know we have the true God with us because he told us this was going to come to pass. Not so that they could avoid what's going to come to pass. I I already showed you some examples of that. But primarily so that they would know that he is the only God because he can tell the future. Isaiah 41, beginning at verse 21. God dares pagans and their gods to match his performance. And the reason we're going to this passage is to establish the fact that fulfilled prophecy is the way God is to be identified. Isaiah 41, 21. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. We are talking about the God of Israel. Produce your cause. Come on. Come and show me why you think you're a God. Come and show me, you pagans, why you think your gods are true gods. Produce your cause, he says. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show us what's going to happen. Let those gods show us the future. Let them show the former things, what they be. Show us the ancient things, like how this world came into existence. That we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Show us the purpose for the creation of the world that we might know the latter end of this creation. The king of Jacob has given us all these things. He's declared future things. He's shown us the origin of the earth and he's revealed to us the purpose of it. The glory of God. Or declare us things for to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that ye are gods. Yea, do good or do evil that we may be dismayed and behold it all together. Behold it together. God challenges other gods. Do something good or do something evil in the future. Tell us before it comes to pass so that when we get there, we'll know that you're gods. Do you hear them? Amen. Do you hear them? And it's, it makes such wonderful sense because every other, many other criteria can be manipulated by man. But if you declare the future and you just wait the appointed time, either it comes to pass or it doesn't. And if it doesn't come to pass, you've run into a liar. If it comes to pass and he's doing it in the name of Jehovah, you have found the true God. Verse 24, Behold, ye are of nothing, and your work of naught. An abomination is he that chooseth you. It doesn't say, an abomination are you. It says, an abomination is he that chooseth you. God calls all those that worship gods who cannot foretell the future. Those worshipers are an abomination. Because it is so ridiculous to worship something as a God that cannot foretell the future. Because God can do anything. Therefore, he can do good or evil in the future, tell you that he's going to do it. You can wait for the appointed time, see that he did do it at the appointed time, and know that he is a God. But there is no God that can bring forth that kind of evidence. Except the true God. Produce your cause. He dares all other gods and all other worshipers by this criterion. Can you prophesy a future event and bring it to pass? I love the God we worship. Brethren, for 4,000 years, simple people, slaves in Egypt, wanderers in Palestine, had this book and a revelation from God. Simple saints in Europe, persecuted and chased from nation to nation, hiding in the caves of the earth, slaughtered in large numbers, had the word of the living God and believed that it exists today and it's in your laps and we are blessed abundantly. How firm a foundation is laid for our faith in his excellent word. Because there are over a thousand prophecies in this book that have been fulfilled.
some of which are so obvious that by themselves they are sufficient to show that there is a divine hand that wrote this book. Turn to Isaiah 42. I hope you like that Isaiah 41 passage. Produce your cause. Bring forth your strong reasons. Don't Don't give us any weak ones. Don't tell me it makes you feel good to worship the God that you do. Don't tell me that your ancestors worshiped that God. All of our ancestors worshiped the sun and the stars and the moon and animals and trees. That's no evidence of anything. Bring forth your strong reasons. Show me some fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another. Neither my praise to graven images. There is no religion of God that has graven images. So you can rule them all out that have statues. Because they're... And a child knows that. A child with understanding. You can walk up to a statue and kick it over and do anything else that you want to it that I'll leave out of this sermon and walk away and nothing is going to happen to you because there is no power or life in it. And I won't give any of my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The former things come to pass. What's happening to you right now? I told you about it formerly. And I'm declaring new things now that are going to come to pass. This is how God identifies himself. I can predict the future and bring it to pass. That is the definition of what we mean by the word God. And that is the identity and character of the God of the Bible. I can predict the future and bring it to pass. Look at chapter 44. Chapter 44. Verse 6. Thus saith the Lord the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. And beside me, there is no God. And who, as I, shall call, and shall declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people, and the things that are coming, and shall come, let them show unto me. Fear ye not, Neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. This is the confidence of the God of the Bible. Show me another God. I don't know of any. Show me a God that can declare future things and bring them to pass. I don't need to say anything else because you are my witnesses. The verses say, you are my witnesses because you have seen the things that I have brought to pass. I am God and there is no other. But we are hearing by our media and from the highest levels of our government that the God of Islam is the same God as the God of Christianity, which is the same God as the God of Judaism, just by a different name. And that is baloney to be gentle and charitable. I could handle being less gentle and less charitable, but maybe you can't. That makes me ill. That makes me sick. The God of Islam isn't even to be compared to the God of Christianity. They are violently and diametrically opposed to each other. And if need be, we will die for the God of Christianity and let them kill us in the name of their God of Islam because that's how violently different they are. The God of Christianity says to love your enemies and to rejoice when you suffer persecution. And the God of Islam says, kill anyone that disagrees with you or kill your enemies. And they do it and they are doing it. And we may suffer at their hands someday. But, as I'm going to tell you tonight, we are not careful 
O king, in the answer we're going to give thee. Whether our God will deliver us or not from your fiery furnace, we don't know. But we are not going to bow down and worship your golden image. God is to be measured by his predictive power. Can he foretell the future and then bring it to pass? That is the definition of God. And God declares, that is how I define myself, prove myself. And I am God and there is no other. I'm the first and I am the last. There's nothing in between. There's nothing outside me. I am the Lord God, Jehovah. This is what he declares about himself. Now remember, it's being declared in the Bible. And truly, before we can believe what's declared in the Bible, we need to establish that the Bible is God's word. 48. I love these verses so much. Isaiah 48. No man can declare he's going to do anything and do it with certainty because we don't know what's going to come tomorrow. Amen. And our strength is so weak, especially to put it out into time. With any duration of time, you do not know what's going to happen. True. You might be able to tell me, I'm going to eat a meal tomorrow, and it might come to pass. And it might not. That's right. And if you say it enough times, there's going to be a day when it doesn't come to pass. And that's just one day. And that's doing something that you're very passive in. Eating. But even the Lord can take that away. Isaiah 48, verse 3. Look at these statements of His. This is, what's, this is how... I hope that you've noticed this is how God identifies and proves Himself. Fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah 48, 3. I have declared the former things from the beginning. And they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them. I did them suddenly... And they came to pass. I told you from the beginning what was going to happen, and I made them happen by my power. Not only does he have the wisdom and the foresight and the omniscience of knowing what's going to come to pass, he makes it come to pass by his omnipotence. And isn't that the definition of God? The being that is omniscient and omnipotent. Knows everything and can do everything. Verse 4. Because I knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thy brow brass, I have even from the beginning declared it to thee. Before it came to pass, I showed it thee. Lest thou shouldest say, Mine idol hath done them. If you're dealing in history, and oh so many religions only deal in one direction on a timeline. History. That's right. History. What do, the, what do Catholics appeal to? But history. What do other religions appeal to? How old they are. Oh, that isn't God's religion. God says, I want to appeal to some things in the future. So that when they come to pass, you'll know that I'm God. Lest thou shouldest say, this is the middle of verse 5, Mine idol hath done them, and my graven image, and my molten image hath commanded them. If an event occurs... Let's say a great monsoon comes and washes away much of a city in a foreign nation. And the priest stands up the next day and says that one of the evil deities did it. Can you prove him wrong? No. Can he prove himself right? No. No. But the case looks good if you have respect for the man because he's a priest. But now God says, that's too simple. That's not a strong reason. That's not a reason at all. Declare something in the future that your idol's going to do, and let me see you make it happen. Verse 6, thou hast heard, see all this, and will not ye declare it? I have showed thee new things from this time, even hidden things, and thou didst not know them. They are created now, and not from the beginning even before the day when thou heardest them not, lest thou shouldest say, Behold, I knew them. Now that language may sound a little convoluted to you, but what God is saying to his people is, before you could even imagine what I was going to predict, I then predicted it and brought it to pass. It is nothing that you've ever seen before, nor did you have a clue that it was going to come to pass, except by my revelation. Amen. 
Yea, thou heardest not. You did not hear about these things that were going to come to pass. Yea, thou knewest not. Yea, from that time that thine ear was not opened. For I knew that thou wouldest deal very treacherously and was called a transgressor, transgressor from the womb. God knows that men will try to avoid his identity and his claims against them. And so he appeals to his predictive power of bringing to pass his prophecies. Now I want to show you that this God has not changed one whit. And the reason he gives prophecies is not for us to speculate about the future. There has been a horrible evil done in the last hundred years, 150 years, in American Christianity, and that's the premillennial scheme of prophecy that uses prophecy as future speculation. Prophecy is generally not given for future speculation. It's given so that when the event comes to pass, you can know that you're worshiping the true God and Jesus Christ is truly sent by God. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. When the Jews came to Jesus Christ and said, Give us a sign. We have Deuteronomy 18 that tells us we should get a sign. Did he call fire down from heaven? Did he appeal to his manna, to his bread that he had fed the people with? Did he appeal to calming the storms or healing the sick? No, he called them an adulterous and evil generation. He said, I'll give you a sign. I'm going to die. And I'm going to be in the ground 72 hours, and then I'm going to raise myself from the dead. Now, has there ever been a greater prophecy than that? That a man on earth, subject to human nature, thirst, hunger, sleep, Growing in stature, size, age, biological aging. A man say, kill me, put me in the ground, and in 72 hours I'll come out of the ground. Now, is that a pretty good predictive pre prediction? Amen. Did he do it? Amen. Yes, he did do it. What power? That was the sign that I'm the Messiah. He didn't call fire down from heaven. He didn't create a pillar of smoke like Moses often had. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And what I want you to notice about that event is that's what he gave as a sign for his identity. Fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. That was verses 38 through 40. That's the only sign that was going to be given to that evil generation. Jesus would be in the ground exactly as long as he said he would, and then he would rise from the dead. Look in your Bibles at John 13. John chapter 13 and verse 19. We are continuing to establish the point that prophecy is given to prove the identity of God and His prophets and His Son, Jesus Christ. So that when you're asked, why do you believe the Bible? I hope you have something better than because my parents believed it. I hope you have something better than because Christians believe it. Amen. You're getting yourself involved in a weak line of reasoning. Pull out the strong ones. And the strongest one is because the Bible predicts over a thousand events and they all came to pass. And if you don't know about that, you're, you're very uneducated. And then have a few of them to lay on them. John 13, verse 19, Jesus said, Now I tell you, before it come, that you may sit around and speculate on the future. Is that what John 13, 19 says? Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am He. And right here he's prophesying about one of the twelve is going to betray him. And he says, I've told you before it comes to pass, so that when it comes to... Did they know who it was? Did they have a little clue as to who it was? Did they have a vague notion that it could be Judas? Did they think that it must be themselves? Were they that far removed from thinking that it was Judas Iscariot? Yep. Jesus said, I tell you before it comes to pass, so that when it happens, you will know my predictive power as being sent from God. That's John 13, 19. 
How about John 14 and verse 29? I want you to see the force of God telling us that the first evidence we have that the Bible is God's Word are fulfilled predictions, fulfilled prophecies. John 14, 29. Now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. John 16, 4. John 16, 4. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. Notice, he doesn't give prophecies so that we can sit around and speculate about the future. He gives prophecies so that we're in the middle of them. When we see them come to pass, we can remember, you know what? Jesus told us about this when there was no evidence that this was going to happen. And so proving himself to be God. Now there are two kinds of prophecies. There are prophecies that are fulfilled within the Bible, and there are prophecies fulfilled outside the Bible. Let's first of all look at the more powerful category, and that is those fulfilled outside the Bible. And I know my time is near an end, but look at Genesis chapter 16, and let me run a few of these examples with you, and it will be a conclusion to this morning's sermon that God's Word is true, our faith is reasonable in believing the Bible is God's Word and only the Bible, and we can defend the Bible on a reasonable basis to men with faith. Because we may run into some who have read other holy books and who need to be shown because they would have heard the Bible ridiculed all their lives and may be intimidated even to open it. And we'll show them. And if not, I hope that at least you go away and when you crack its pages at home, you feel like you're cracking the most valuable treasure in your homes. Amen. We've talked sometimes. If a fire were to burn up your house, what's the first thing you'd want to go in and get? Or what would you want to take with you? I would hope that some of you would have a thought. Now, Bibles can be replaced. Right. But if you have notes in your Bibles, and I have many things that deal with the Bible, they'd be the first things I'd go after. Clothes, pictures, are you kidding me? Man, pictures of me in the past, pictures of me in the present. Fire's a good place for them. But I want my Bible. Amen. And I want the notes pertaining to the Bible. Genesis chapter 16. This is one I gave you a couple Sunday nights ago. But it's because it's so valuable. And its fulfillment is outside the Bible. No one can question that the book of Genesis was written at least 500 or to 1,000 B.C. No one questions that. No one believes the book of Genesis was written A.D. No one. Not the worst skeptic. They all know that there is sufficient manuscript evidence of the Old Testament and Jewish history that's been confirmed by enemies of the Jews that there was an Old Testament long before Jesus Christ. So we come to Genesis 16 and verse 12 where we have a prophecy of Ishmael and the Arabians that came from him. And I gave you this already. But I want you to just see how we use the Bible to show that it's such a reasonable book. Here is God making a prediction about Abraham's son Ishmael. Genesis 16, 12. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. That single verse tells us the character of the Arabians, the history of the Arabians, and the location of the Arabians in one verse. They know that Ishmael is the father of the Arabians. They claim him as their father. So we have established a verse written at least 1000 B.C., identifying a man that the Arabians admit to be their father. And God predicts something about those people. They, their character is to be wild. Their history is that they will be at war with every man around them, and every man around them is going to be at war with them. And they're going to dwell in the midst of all their brethren. The Isaac and sons of Keturah, all the descendants of Abraham, which we are told very plainly in the Bible what area they inhabited, stretching from the Tigris and Euphrates River to the river of Egypt. 
that great section that we now call the Middle East. There it is in the Bible. Now, bring forth the Veda. Bring forth the Veda of the Hindus and show me a prophecy. This prophecy names a man. It's talking about Ishmael and his descendants. It gives his character, his history, and his location in one verse. And if this verse right here by itself, if you were to read a little bit about history of the Arabian people, to know how well this verse describes them is sufficient by itself to prove the divine origin of the Bible. It is incredibly accurate. And there is, no, there is no argument with the Arabians as to who their father was. They know he was Ishmael. And that can be proven in other ways also, but the fact that they admit it makes it an easy prophecy to use. How about the perilous times of the last days? Now that was written, no one, not the worst skeptic, everyone knows that 2 Timothy chapter 3 was written approximately 60 A.D., that prophecy describes an information explosion with people ever learning and never, a- never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, with women being led astray by false Christian teachers, and a religious system that begins with self-love, has a form of godliness without any power, and where people are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now, when you look at that in the light of 60 A.D., and you look at it in the light of 20th century America, what a prophecy. See, it's fulfilled outside the Bible. We're not going to the Bible to find its fulfillment because we can see it in the history of Christianity in our own country and the history of Christianity since the time of the apostles. Perilous times would come in the last days. And we can see that has developed. Look at 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4. There's many of these. I'm just giving you a few. I will develop more for your study from outlines on our website. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, here's a prophecy from God. In the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats. God comes out in 1 Timothy chapter 4, which was written about 55 A.D., and we're told that devilish doctrines are coming, two of which, and these are false teachers of Christianity. Christian, Christian teachers are going to take up some lies of the devil, having their conscience seared, They're going to forbid marriage, and they're going to require abstinence from meats. Now, when did those two doctrines come along? Not for a long time. Not for another 500 years do we see the the laws of celibacy even getting a weak start. And not for a thousand years were they established as rules of the church of, of Rome. A thousand years later, and there it is, everyone... Even the most atheistic skeptic knows that those words were written because there's tons of manuscript evidence they were written in 55 A.D. Two doctrines of the Catholic Church that didn't develop for a thousand years. Proof that the Bible is written by God because of fulfilled prophecies that we can show the fulfillment outside the Bible. We're not arguing in a circle as they would accuse us if we were merely within the Bible. We're looking at events outside the Bible. Paul said that Jesus Christ cannot come until the man of sin sits on a seat claiming himself to be God in the temple of God in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And that that man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 cannot sit on his seat in the temple of God until a restraining power is taken out of the way. You say, well, that's so vague it could mean anything. No, it couldn't mean anything because there's only one temple of God in a Christian sense of that word, which was what Paul was dealing with, where a man sits on a throne claiming himself to be God. And that's the popes of Rome. Paul prophesies the rise of the popes of Rome in 50 A.D. 
when they didn't arise with power in the city of Rome until around 600 A.D., when the Caesars left the city of Rome vacant and moved to the west, the east end of the Mediterranean Sea and moved the head of the Roman government to what we call Constantinople, leaving a power vacuum in Rome. And up from those ashes rose the bishop of Rome to take over the churches of Jesus Christ and sit on the bishop's seat, which is called speaking ex-cathedra in the Roman Catholic Church, claiming to be God. All fulfilled, long after spoken. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We could go to Daniel chapter 7 and see 4. There isn't a skeptic in the world that knows that Daniel, the book of Daniel was not written well into the B.C. hundreds. Because there was evidence of Daniel, and Daniel was contained in Jewish writings. And there is other internal evidence, the use of language in the book, in the manuscripts that are had, the language that is used, the Chaldean of the fourth chapter. They can, they can show when Daniel was written. And that isn't even our purpose. All I want to tell you is that in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel describes in rather good detail the rise of four world empires, the last of which would be the Roman Empire, which would have ten horns, which Revelation explains as being ten nations that would give their kingdoms to the popes of Rome. And for a while, the popes of Rome did rule over the ten common market nations of Europe. And a little horn would come up out of those ten horns, and that little horn would be different from all other rulers. And he would make war against the saints of the Most High. And so we have described for us the Inquisition of the Dark Ages. And he would set down the laws of God and make his own laws. And there is a prophecy, Daniel 7, Revelation 12, 13, 17, and 18, describing how long that popes, the popes, would rule over the saints of God and persecute them, described as time, times, and half a time, which is three and a half years, which is also described as 42 months, which is also described as 1,260 days, which, using the Bible's own internal prophecy of a day for a year, was the 1,260 years stretching from the rise of the popes to their loss of civil authority in the late 17 and early 1800s. Prophecy fulfilled. All you have to do is look and see it. The prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus, an eyewitness Jew who did not believe in Jesus Christ, he had no motivation to want to fulfill the words of Jesus Christ, gives an eyewitness account of the destruction of Jerusalem that fulfills the Bible account to a T. You know what? There's a whole other category of prophecies. And those prophecies are prophecies made in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New. And do you know what God put between those two testaments to help skeptics, to help you? 500 years. No prophet spoke. 500-year time gap. Men know that the Old Testament is well into the hundreds B.C. because of the evidence of, the, of manuscripts and the history of the Jews and the accounts of their written scriptures. But there's a 500-year gap so that anything written in the Old Testament had at least 500 years before its fulfillment in the New Testament. And there are hundreds and hundreds of them. The name of the town where Jesus was born, the number of the pieces of silver that would be used for his betrayal. And they're fulfilled over and over and over and over again. And that New Testament could have been discredited in the first century if it wasn't true, because it was only being defended by some ignorant and uneducated fishermen. But it wasn't, because the account there is true, and it was backed up by mighty signs and wonders. That's why it wasn't overthrown. The apostles never went around trying to prove the validity of the Old Testament, like what I'm doing with you this morning, because they could do something I can't do. They just went around and healed your sick mother, raised your dead daughter from the dead. You would have a strong motivation to believe them. 
And that's what confirmed their word so that men would listen to the testimony of fishermen. And it was not overthrown, it was believed. But the prophecies from the old to the new are incredible. That Jesus would hang with common criminals from Isaiah 53? Did he? Amen. Was he numbered with the transgressors? Were his hands and feet pierced? That's Psalm 22. That's 1000 B.C. Fulfilled in the nails that pierced the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. The first evidence that we have that the Bible was written by God and the strongest evidence is fulfilled prophecy. No other book can do it. No other book dare declare about the future. There's over a thousand prophecies in the Bible that have been fulfilled. Some in the New Testament, but there is a 500-year gap between the two Testaments to add validity and magnify those fulfillments. And then there are fulfillments that have occurred since the New Testament, a few of which I've given you. There are whole cities that were prophesied that at the time the document was written, like the book of Ezekiel, Tyre was one of the greatest cities on earth. And today, you can't find it. It's just a little tiny fishing village where fishermen come along in the Mediterranean Sea and dry their nets. But all of that is described in the Bible. Babylon, the greatest city on earth, impregnable. All it is is heaps and mounds of sand and dirt today because God said it would never be rebuilt. And when the prophecy was made, it was the most powerful city on earth. On and on it goes. May the Lord be praised. May you love your Bibles. May you read them. And most importantly of all for us, may we obey them. Because it's the word of God to our souls. How firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord has laid for your faith in his excellent word.